Part Second of Nostromo by Joseph Conrad The Isabels, Chapter 8, Section 2 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan Part Second, The Isabels, Chapter 8, Section 2 The rain began to fall again, first like a wet mist, then with a heavier touch, thickening into a smart, perpendicular downpour and the hiss and thump of the approaching steamer was coming extremely near. Decoud, with his eyes full of water and lowered head, asked himself how long it would be before she drew past, when unexpectedly he felt a lurch. An inrush of foam broke swishing over the stern, simultaneously with a crack of timbers and a staggering shock. He had the impression of an angry hand laying hold of the lighter and dragging it along to destruction. The shock, of course, had knocked him down, and he found himself rolling in a lot of water at the bottom of the lighter. A violent churning went on alongside. A strange and amazed voice cried out something above him in the night. He heard a piercing shriek for help from Signor Hirsch. He kept his teeth hard set all the time. It was a collision. The steamer had struck the lighter obliquely heeling her over till she was half swamped, starting some of her timbers and swinging her head parallel to her own course with the force of the blow. The shock of it on board of her was hardly perceptible. All the violence of that collision was, as usual, felt only on board the smaller craft. Even Nostromo himself thought that this was perhaps the end of his desperate adventure. He, too, had been flung away from the long tiller, which took charge in the lurch. Next moment the steamer would have passed on, leaving the lighter to sink or swim after having shouldered her thus out of the way, and without even getting a glimpse of her form, had it not been that, being deeply laden with stores and the great number of people on board, her anchor was low enough to hook itself into one of the wire shrouds of the lighter's mast. For the space of two or three gasping breaths that new rope held against the sudden strain, it was this that gave Decoud the sensation of the snatching pull dragging the lighter away to destruction. The cause of it, of course, was inexplicable to him. The whole thing was so sudden that he had no time to think. But all his sensations were perfectly clear. He had kept complete possession of himself, in fact. He was even pleasantly aware of that calmness at the very moment of being pitched head first over the transom to struggle on his back in a lot of water. Signor Hirsch's shriek he had heard and recognised while he was regaining his feet, always with that mysterious sensation of being dragged headlong through the darkness. Not a word, not a cry escaped him. He had no time to see anything, and following upon the despairing scream for help, the dragging motion ceased so suddenly that he staggered forward with open arms and fell against the pile of the treasure boxes. He clung to them instinctively in the vague apprehension of being flung about again, and immediately he heard another lot of shrieks for help, prolonged and despairing, not near him at all, but unaccountably in the distance, away from the lighter altogether, as if some spirit in the night were mocking at Signor Hirsch's terror and despair. Then all was still, as still as when you wake up in your bed in a dark room from a bizarre and agitated dream. The lighter rocked slightly. The rain was still falling. Two groping hands took hold of his bruised sides from behind, and the Capitaz's voice whispered in his ear, Silence for your life, silence. The steamer has stopped. 
Decoud listened. The gulf was dumb. He felt the water nearly up to his knees. Are we sinking? he asked in a faint breath. I don't know, Nostromo breathed back to him. Senor, make not the slightest sound. Hirsch, when ordered forward by Nostromo, had not returned into his first hiding place. He had fallen near the mast and had no strength to rise. Moreover, he feared to move. He had given himself up for dead, but not on any rational grounds. It was simply a cruel and terrifying feeling. Whenever he tried to think what would become of him, his teeth would start chattering violently. He was too absorbed in the utter misery of his fear to take notice of anything. Though he was stifling under the lighter's sail which Nostromo had unwittingly lowered on top of him, he did not even dare to put out his head till the very moment of the steamer striking. Then, indeed, he leapt right out, spurred on to new miracles of bodily vigour by this new shape of danger. The inrush of water when the lighter heeled over unsealed his lips. His shriek, save me, was the first distinct warning of the collision for the people on board the steamer. Next moment the wire shroud parted and the released anchor swept over the lighter's forecastle. It came against the breast of Senor Hirsch, who simply seized hold of it without in the least knowing what it was, but curling his arms and legs upon the part above the fluke with an invincible, unreasonable tenacity. The lighter yawed off wide, and the steamer, moving on, carried him away, clinging hard and shouting for help. It was some time, however, after the steamer had stopped that his position was discovered. His sustained yelping for help seemed to come from somebody swimming in the water. At last a couple of men went over the bows and hauled him on board. He was carried straight off to Sotillo on the bridge. His examination confirmed the impression that some craft had been run over and sunk, but it was impractical on such a dark night to look for the positive proof of floating wreckage. Sotillo was more anxious than ever now to enter the harbour without loss of time. The idea that he had destroyed the principal object of his expedition was too intolerable to be accepted. This feeling made the story he had heard appear the more incredible. Signor Hirsch, after being beaten a little for telling lies, was thrust into the chart room. But he was beaten only a little. His tail had taken the heart out of Sotillo's staff though they all repeated round their chief, impossible, impossible, with the exception of the old major, who triumphed gloomily. I told you, I told you, he mumbled, I could smell some treachery, some diableria, a league off. Meantime, the steamer had kept on her way towards Sulaco, where only the truth of that matter could be ascertained. Deku and Nostromo heard the loud churning of her propeller diminish and die out, and then, with no useless words, busied themselves in making for the Isabels. The last shower had brought with it a gentle but steady breeze. The danger was not over yet, and yet there was no time for talk. The lighter was leaking like a sieve. They splashed in the water at every step. The capitaz put into Deku's hands the handle of the pump which was fitted at the side aft, and at once, without question or remark, Deku began to pump in utter forgetfulness of every desire but that of keeping the treasure afloat. Nostromo hoisted the sail, flew back to the tiller, pulled at the sheet like mad. The short flare of a match, they had been kept dry in a tight tin box, though the man himself was completely wet, disclosed to the toiling Deku the eagerness of his face, bent low over the box of the compass and the attentive stare of his eyes. 
He knew now where he was, and he hoped to run the sinking lighter ashore in the shallow cove where the high cliff-like end of the Great Isabel is divided in two equal parts by a deep and overgrown ravine. Decoud pumped without intermission. Nostromo steered without relaxing for a second the intense, peering effort of his stare. Each of them was as if utterly alone with his task. It did not occur to them to speak. There was nothing in common between them but the knowledge that the damaged lighter must be slowly but surely sinking. In that knowledge, which was like the crucial test of their desires, they seemed to have become completely estranged, as if they had discovered in the very shock of the collision that the loss of the lighter would not mean the same thing to them both. This common danger brought their differences in aim, in view, in character and in position into absolute prominence in the private vision of each. There was no bond of conviction, of common idea. They were merely two adventurers pursuing each his own adventure, involved in the same imminence of deadly peril. Therefore, they had nothing to say to each other. But this peril, this only incontrovertible truth in which they shared, seemed to act as an inspiration to their mental and bodily powers. There was certainly something almost miraculous in the way the captain made the cove, with nothing but the shadowy hint of the island's shape and the vague gleam of a small sandy strip for a guide. Where the ravine opens between the cliffs and a slender, shallow rivulet meanders out of the bushes to lose itself in the sea, the lighter was run ashore, and the two men, with a taciturn, undaunted energy, began to discharge her precious freight, carrying each oxhide box up the bed of the rivulet beyond the bushes to a hollow place which the caving in of the soil had made below the roots of a large tree. Its big, smooth trunk leaned like a falling column far over the trickle of water running amongst the loose stones. A couple of years before, Nostromo had spent a whole Sunday all alone exploring the island. He explained this to Deku after their task was done, and they sat, weary in every limb, with their legs hanging down the low bank and their backs against the tree like a pair of blind men, aware of each other and their surroundings by some indefinable sixth sense. Yes, Nostromo repeated, I never forget a place I have carefully looked at once. He spoke slowly, almost lazily, as if there had been a whole leisurely life before him instead of the scanty two hours before daylight. The existence of the treasure, barely concealed in this improbable spot, laid a burden of secrecy upon every contemplated step, upon every intention and plan of future conduct. He felt the partial failure of this desperate affair, entrusted to the great reputation he had known how to make for himself. However, it was also a partial success. His vanity was half appeased. His nervous irritation had subsided. You'll never know what may be of use, he pursued with his usual quietness of tone and manner. I spent a whole miserable Sunday in exploring this crumb of land. A misanthropic sort of occupation, muttered Deku viciously. You had no money, I suppose, to gamble with and to fling about amongst the girls in your usual haunts, Capitaz? Yea, vero, exclaimed the Capitaz, surprised into the use of his native language by so much perspicacity. I had not. Therefore, I did not want to go amongst those beggarly people accustomed to my generosity. It is looked for from the capitals of the cargadores who are the rich men and, as it were, the caballeros amongst the common people. 
I don't care for cards, but it's a pastime. And as to those girls that boast of having opened their doors to my knock, you'll know I wouldn't look at any one of them twice except for what the people would say. They are queer, the good people of Salako, and I have got much useful information simply by listening patiently to the talk of the women that everybody believed I was in love with. Poor Teresa could never understand that. On that particular Sunday, Senor, she scolded so that I went out of the house swearing that I would never darken their door again unless to fetch away my hammock and my chest of clothes. Senor, there is nothing more exasperating than to hear a woman you respect rail against your good reputation when you have not a single brass coin in your pocket. I untied one of the small boats and pulled myself out of the harbour with nothing but three cigars in my pocket to help me spend the day on this island. But the water of this rivulet you hear under your feet is cool and sweet and good, senor, both before and after a smoke. He was silent for a while, then added reflectively, that was the first Sunday after I brought down the white-whiskered English Rico all the way down the mountains from the Paramo on the top of the Entrada Pass, and in the coach, too. No coach had gone up or down that mountain road within the memory of man, senor, till I brought this one down in charge of fifty peons, working like one man with ropes, pickaxes and poles under my direction. That was the rich Englishman who, as people say, pays for the making of this railway. He was very pleased with me, but my wages were not due till the end of the month. He slid down the bank suddenly. Deku heard the splash of his feet in the brook and followed his footsteps down the ravine. His form was lost among the bushes till he had reached the strip of sand under the cliff. As often happens in the gulf when the showers during the first part of the night had been frequent and heavy, the darkness had thinned considerably towards the morning, though there were no signs of daylight as yet. The cargo lighter, relieved of its precious burden, rocked feebly, half afloat, with her forefoot in the sand. A long rope stretched away like a black cotton thread across the strip of white beach to the grapnel. Nostromo had carried ashore and hooked to the stern of a tree-like shrub in the very opening of the ravine. There was nothing for Deku but to remain on the island. He received from Nostromo's hands whatever food the foresight of Captain Mitchell had put on board the lighter and deposited it temporarily in the little dinghy which, on their arrival, they had hauled up out of sight amongst the bushes. It was to be left with him. The island was to be a hiding place, not a prison. He could pull out to a passing ship. The OSN company's mailboats passed close to the island when going into Salako from the north. But the Minerva, carrying off the ex-president, had taken the news up north of the disturbances in Salako. It was possible that the next steamer down would get instructions to miss the port altogether, since the town, as far as the Minerva's officers knew, was, for the time being, in the hands of the rabble. This would mean that there would be no steamer for a month, as far as the mail service went. But Deku had to take his chance of that. The island was his only shelter from the proscription hanging over his head. The Capitaz was, of course, going back. The unloaded lighter leaked much less, and he thought that she would keep afloat as far as the harbour. 
He passed to Decoud, standing knee-deep alongside, one of the two spades which belonged to the equipment of each lighter for use when ballasting ships. By working with it carefully as soon as there was daylight enough to see, Decoud could loosen a mass of earth and stones overhanging the cavity in which they had deposited the treasure, so that it would look as if it had fallen naturally. It would cover up not only the cavity, but even all traces of their work, the footsteps, the displaced stones, and even the broken bushes. Besides, who would think of looking either for you or the treasure here, Nostromo continued, as if he could not tear himself away from the spot. Nobody is ever likely to come here. What could any man want with this piece of earth, as long as there is room for his feet on the mainland? The people of this country are not curious. There are even no fishermen here to intrude upon your worship. All the fishing that is done in the gulf goes on near Zapiga, over there. Signor, if you are forced to leave this island before anything can be arranged for you, do not try to make for Zapiga. It is a settlement of thieves and matreros where they would cut your throat promptly for the sake of your gold watch and chain. And, Signor, think twice before confiding in anyone whatever, even in the officers of the company's steamers, if you ever get on board one. Honesty alone is not enough for security. You must look to discretion and prudence in a man, and always remember, Signor, before you open your lips for a confidence that this treasure may be left safely here for hundreds of years. Time is on its side, Signor, and silver is an incorruptible metal that can be trusted to keep its value forever. An incorruptible metal, he repeated, as if the idea had given him a profound pleasure. As some men are said to be, Decoud pronounced inscrutably, while the Capitaz, who busied himself in bailing out the lighter with a wooden bucket, went on throwing the water over the side with a regular splash. Decoud, incorrigible in his scepticism, reflected, not cynically but with general satisfaction, that this man was made incorruptible by his enormous vanity, that finest form of egoism which can take on the aspect of every virtue. Nostromo ceased bailing and, as if struck with a sudden thought, dropped the bucket with a clatter into the lighter. "'Have you any message?' he asked in a lowered voice. "'Remember, I shall be asked questions.' "'You must find the hopeful words that ought to be spoken to the people in town. "'I trust for that your intelligence and your experience, Capitaz. You understand?' "'Si, senor, for the ladies.' Yes, yes, said Deku hastily. Your wonderful reputation will make them attach great value to your words. Therefore, be careful what you say. I am looking forward, he continued, feeling the fatal touch of contempt for himself, to which his complex nature was subject. I am looking forward to a glorious and successful ending to my mission. Do you hear, Capitaz? Use the words glorious and successful when you speak to the Signorita. Your own mission is accomplished gloriously and successfully. You have indubitably saved the silver of the mine, not only this silver, but probably all the silver that shall ever come out of it. Nostromo detected the ironic tone. I dare say, Signor Don Martin, he said moodily, there are very few things I am not equal to. Ask the foreign signori. I, a man of the people who cannot always understand what you mean. 
But as to this lot which I must leave here, let me tell you that I would believe it in greater safety if you had not been with me at all. An exclamation escaped Deku, and a short pause followed. Shall I go back with you to Salako? he asked in an angry tone. Shall I strike you dead with my knife where you stand? retorted Nostromo contemptuously. It would be the same thing as taking you to Salako. Come, signor, your reputation is in your politics, and mine is bound up with the fate of this silver. Do you wonder I wish there had been no other man to share my knowledge? I wanted no one with me, signor. You could not have kept the lighter afloat without me, Deku almost shouted. You would have gone to the bottom with her. Yes, uttered Nostromo slowly. Alone. Here was a man, Deku reflected, that seemed as though he would have preferred to die rather than deface the perfect form of his egoism. Such a man was safe. In silence he helped the Capitas to get the grapnel on board. Nostromo cleared the shelving shore with one push of the heavy oar, and Deku found himself solitary on the beach, like a man in a dream. A sudden desire to hear a human voice once more seized upon his heart. The lighter was hardly distinguishable from the black water upon which she floated. "'What do you think has become of Hirsch?' he shouted. "'Knocked overboard and drowned!' cried Nostromo's voice confidently out of the black wastes of sky and sea around the islet. "'Keep close in the ravine, signor. I shall try to come out to you in a night or two. A slight swishing rustle showed that Nostromo was setting the sail. It filled all at once with a sound as of a single loud drum-tap. Deku went back to the ravine. Nostromo, at the tiller, looked back from time to time at the vanishing mass of the Great Isabel, which, little by little, merged into the uniform texture of the night. At last, when he turned his head again, he saw nothing but a smooth darkness, like a solid wall. Then he, too, experienced that feeling of solitude which had weighed heavily on Deku after the lighter had slipped off the shore. But while the man on the island was oppressed by a bizarre sense of unreality affecting the very ground upon which he walked, the mind of the capitas of the cargadores turned alertly to the problem of future conduct. Nostromo's faculties, working on parallel lines, enabled him to steer straight, to keep a lookout for Hermosa near which he had to pass, and to try to imagine what would happen tomorrow in Sulaco. Tomorrow, or as a matter of fact today, since the dawn was not very far, Satillo would find out in what way the treasure had gone. A gang of cargadores had been employed in loading it into a railway truck from the custom house storerooms and running the truck onto the wharf. There would be arrests made, and certainly before noon Satillo would know in what manner the silver had left Sulaco, and who it was that took it out. Nostromo's intention had been to sail right into the harbour, but at this thought, by a sudden touch of the tiller, he threw the lighter into the wind and checked her rapid way. His reappearance with the very boat would raise suspicions, would cause surmises, would absolutely put Satillo on the track. He himself would be arrested, and once in the Calabozo there was no saying what they would do to him to make him speak. He trusted himself, but he stood up to look round. Nearby, Hermosa showed low its white surface as flat as a table, with a slight run of the sea raised by the breeze washing over its edges noisily. The lighter, 
must be sunk at once. He allowed her to drift with her sail aback. There was already a good deal of water in her. He allowed her to drift towards the harbour entrance and, letting the tiller swing about, squatted down and busied himself in loosening the plug. With that out she would fill very quickly, and every lighter carried a little iron ballast, enough to make her go down when full of water. When he stood up again, the noisy wash about the Hermosa sounded far away, almost inaudible, and already he could make out the shape of land about the harbour entrance. This was a desperate affair, and he was a good swimmer. A mile was nothing to him, and he knew of an easy place for landing just below the earthworks of the old abandoned fort. It occurred to him with a peculiar fascination that this fort was a good place in which to sleep the day through after so many sleepless nights. With one blow of the tiller he unshipped for the purpose, he knocked the plug out, but did not take the trouble to lower the sail. He felt the water welling up heavily about his legs before he leapt onto the taffrail. There, upright and motionless, in his shirt and trousers only, he stood waiting. When he had felt her settle, he sprang away with a mighty splash. At once he turned his head. The gloomy, clouded dawn from behind the mountain showed him on the smooth waters the upper corner of the sail, a dark, wet triangle of canvas waving slightly to and fro. He saw it vanish as if jerked under, and then struck out for the shore. End of part second, The Isabels, chapter eight, section two.